0: You ever have one of those things where you write something, or you draw something, or you make something, and you're like, oh, I've made this totally original work. Someone is like, oh, that's just a riff on this other thing, and you're like, oh. It actually happens more often than you'd think. Usually it's because you saw, or read, or listened to the other work, and didn't really process it. And you were just like, I want to do this, such and thing. And then, you know, someone points it out to you, and you're like, oh. God, you're absolutely right. I've done, I've actually done that before with a song, and I'm sure plenty of other people have done that with plenty of other things, too. So Gene Kuhn actually wrote this episode, and then it was pointed out to him that it was basically a riff on another episode, and he's like, oh, well, that sucks. Uh, let's go ahead and give him credit and pay him for this, and then just get on with it. And they're like, okay. You'd probably think, well, why not just ditch it and do another script? Well, first of all, Kuhn was overworked like crazy at this point, as I mentioned earlier, but also, remember, they were kind of script starved, so, not really in a position to be turning down scripts, especially ones that are basically done. This, um, this is also an interesting episode for many reasons. The most important one being Joseph Pevney. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I actually looked it up. Joseph Pevney is basically tied with Mark Daniels. Uh, wait, is it Mark Daniels? Oh, God. Yeah, let me make sure I'm getting the right name here. For most directors on TOS. He if if you've seen an episode of TOS, there is a reasonably good chance that you have in fact seen an episode. Yeah, it's Mark Daniels, i right. That you've seen an episode directed by him or Mark Daniels. He's also Well, he's got some ideas about directing and how that should be done. I was debating if I wanted to bring that up here or not. But I want to bring up a salient fact because it is actually relevant here, and this is part of my build-up to season two. So, first of all, uh, he he's a long-standing director, and of course, a writer and actor as well. And here we go, found it. Um, he was brought in because he has a, a rep- had a reputation for being under budget and under time. In fact, he got a bonus for this episode of 500 bucks for managing to take what was intended and budgeted to be a seven-day shoot and make a six-day shoot out of it if you're paying attention that is the first time that has happened in tos history that they've actually been under budget so credit to him especially on an episode like this he also ran a very tight ship and had everything nice and efficiently leaned out but this well this is part of the problem so pevney has said many many times that he absolutely hated working on this show No, really, the man is vitriolic, almost. Nah, that's a bit excessive. But the man, there's a lot of rancor. That's a better word. There's a lot of rancor in how he talks about directing Trek. Now, this entire page and half of this page are all Pevni ranting about directing on Trek. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, okay? But I'm going to summarize it for you. It's time-consuming. It destroys disciplinary control of the director on the set. Um... Leonard and Bill wanted to make the show better, but that made our lives hell. And let me let me boil down to two big things, okay? Check this out. Well, Mark and I went off to do other shows, they brought in new directors. The new directors had ideas, but the actors were already ingrained in behavior patterns, which did not permit inventiveness, which was, as they felt, opposed to their character. That was the real beginning of the problem. This is part of the discussion of why Season 2 was the worst season ever for TOS. Uh, certainly news to me. Most people I hear say season one is the, well, season three is the bad one and season two is the good one. But anyways, uh, Bill would not do certain things because Kirk wouldn't do that. Leonard felt very, very strongly because his character was so deeply ingrained and he knew precisely how Spock would behave. It was right in certain aspects with the actors protecting themselves. It was wrong in the fact that their minds were closed to new inventiveness. There were good and bad things involved, but then we would be back and there'd be a whole new uh, attitude by the actor. Now, the actor had become co producer, co director, co writer. A whole different attitude towards me, Joe Pevney, or, or. Wait. No, this is Pevney. I'm right. I'm right. Towards me, I don't know why he mentions himself by name, or towards Mark Daniels. Now, my attitude towards that is a very strong one. I don't bend with that kind of stuff. The director's the director. You want to be a director? God bless you. Go be a director. But when I'm the director, I'm the director, you're an actor, I, uh, and the, you make the greatest contributions you can, and I make the choices. Now, the reason I'm sharing all of this with you is because this contributed even more to that growing tension that was on the set. Because he's right. Both Shatner and Nimoy were effectively becoming co-directors, co-producers, and co-writers in their own show. This is actually incredibly normal in modern television. This was... uh, I don't want to say it was uncommon, but I also don't want to say it was common. This is not exactly unheard of. But at the same time, most people didn't do this back in the day for various reasons. Uh, Whether those are right or wrong, that's up to you. That's an opinion call. But the fact of the matter is, uh, he very much strongly believed that an actor's job was to do what the director told them to the end. And he didn't appreciate the interference on the work. And I think one of the biggest reasons for that was because his reputation was for running a tight ship. And for getting things done under budget and done quicker. And if you have writers having a say, or excuse me, actors having a say in the script and in the presentation, you're going to slow things down. One of the things he complains about specifically is William Shatner really pushed this rehearsal table idea. He really wanted to be able to talk with the other actors about their upcoming scenes and just kind of go through how they wanted to do things and how they wanted to bounce off each other and act off each other. Now, to be clear, that's a great idea. No, really. At least on paper, that is a phenomenal idea, getting the actors a chance to kind of do a very quick drive-through or read-through, get a feel for each other, and kind of talk through in like a, a consensus, almost a council of actors, if you will, on exactly how you want to portray the next scene. But you can already see the problems with it. First of all, it adds time to every scene. Sec- which, and of course that directly translates to money. Second problem is that it kind of ignores the input of the director whose job it is to tell the actors how to act and how to perform. That's one of the primary jobs of the director. So you can see why there was a lot of tension going on on set as a result of these things happening. None of that really started with this episode, but I wanted to mention it here because this was his first inclusion into Trek, and this is something that he felt very strongly going all the way into season two. We also see William uh, back again. He plays the Gorn. Thies designed the Gorn's outfit. That's cool. Um, we also find out, this is actually, so okay, let, let's get to the episode proper now that we've, oh actually, one more thing I want to talk about. William Shatner has tinnitus, which is something he's mentioned on the American Tinnitus Association site, you can see his quote of it there. Shatner himself says that he got that from this episode, from the explosions that were going off pretty much right next to the actors as they were doing their lines and stuff. That's kind of horrible. Now, thankfully, we do have the ability to kind of help people who have tinnitus issues, but good lord, that really says a lot about how television and just making a craft in general can lead to long-term problems that basically never go away. Anywho, so, let's talk about the episode proper. First, we have some good world-building with The Chef. The Commodore has a chef down there, and that chef is his own personal chef, and McCoy's just looking forward to getting some, uh, how did he phrase it, non-reconstituted meals. This is probably the first real time we've discussed food in TOS. It's come up a couple of times with regards to rations or the peppers and all that stuff, but this is the first time they've actually discussed it in any reasonable manner. I know you're, you're going to be bringing up Charlie X and the turkeys thing. And that's certainly valid. But remember, he mentioned they had meatloaf, which is actually meat. That's, that's really not the same as this concept being presented here. It makes me wonder what kind of rations they had in this era, especially since as we see, um, a little over a century before this, they certainly had the ability to make food on board the ship. Thank you. Thank you, chef, for that over on Enterprise. But I know, I know. Continuity, right? <clears throat> So then they go down, and everything's destroyed. Da-na-na-na. You know, that's a good reveal and all. Where's uh, where's the sensors? You'd think the sensors would have been able to detect this way before they actually beam down. But what the heck ever. So they don't beam up. They decide to scan on foot. Why? I mean, on the one hand, I could kind of see the reasoning because they want to investigate. But on the other hand, this is a known trap. What are they doing? And sure enough, they are then locked down there when the ship gets attacked. Also, seconds later, a red shirt dies because, of course, he's actually wearing a red shirt, too. Got to prove the situation serious. So, first, we've got, we're still keeping track of our firsts in DOS. First, photon torpedo. They actually mention arming photon torpedoes to fight the Gorn ship. Cool. Uh, finally, a thing that's established. Although, I was researching photon torpedoes to verify that this was, in fact, the first inclusion. It turns out torpedoes would not actually be codified in canon as a physical object, an actual torpedo, uh, a guided projectile, until Star Trek two. It's so weird thinking about the history of this series sometimes. Anyways. So... Uh, photon torpedoes. Uh, this is when Coon's lack of ability to write uh, action kind of comes into play, if I might be so bold. First of all, the Gorn are just constantly shelling the area. Do, are, are their shots weak? Can they not get through the actual defenses that they're in? Those don't look like particularly sturdy buildings. Second, there's a fight between the Enterprise and the Gorn ship. Um, so... And the uh, this could be argued to be the first time an unknown, hitherto, never-seen-before alien is the match for the best ship in the fleet, because the Gorn vessel effortlessly shrugs off everything the Enterprise does, both in terms of damage and in terms of speed. Uh, remember, the Gorn are very close to being a one-off race. They They actually do make an appearance over in Enterprise, and that's basically it, unless you play STO. I actually thought about making a Gorn character, but no. My Gorn's my first officer. He's my head security guy, and he hits like a truck. But, anyways, yeah. So <laughs> we have a problem here, don't we? Because the so there's, there's the obvious issues, which I've complained about for years about random aliens who are just as good as the Federation's finest. And how many issues there are with the world building with that concept. But then we add on to that the fact that the Enterprise is fighting a ship it can't see. Now remember that. They're out of visual range. Okay. But they're in range of communicating with the planet. And beaming to the planet. And shooting them with phasers and photon torpedoes. But they can't see them. Right. Right. This is all done to maintain suspense. This is the Jaws thing. They're, this is a very deliberately the Jaws thing. They, you notice they never see any Gorn on the planet either? They're trying to build up the idea that there's this monster that they're fighting. Although, the inclinations are pretty early on. But I'll, I'll, I'm going to get to that point in a minute. So then, the enemy ship beams up their own people at extreme range, I feel like pointing out. So they're, they're tel- their transporters can beam up from way out. Still out of range of combat, but, you know, whatever. Also, notice that uh, the dude was uh, half an hour from death. They were attacked like a day ago, right? Also, what's with the super grenade that Kirk uses? That one makes me kind of wonder. Anyways, so there's no known motive. We don't know what's actually going on or why or what these things are doing. So for all intents and purposes, these are a threat of the week, right? Well, hear me out for a second. Um, although, I, I gotta say, by the way, this whole thing with the Gorn just randomly... We don't even know they're called the Gorn at this point, it's worth noting. They're just... There's an al- enemy... There's an alien race, maybe, who is attacking us, and they also have a ship which is also attacking us. That's about as far as we've got. I'm reminded of the Chigs over in Starfleet... Uh, or Not Starfleet. Space Above and Beyond. Excuse me. Which is an excellent show I recommend you watch, by the way. By the way... This is the first reference of the Federation in the entire franchise. This is a lot of firsts, actually. We've got our first thing with Pebney. We've got our first uh, real discussion of the reconstitution food thing. We've got our first photon torpedoes. We've got our first reference to the Federation. I feel like there's another one. Oh, there is another one. I forgot about that. I'll get to that in just a second, because Kirk is livid. His colony, his people who are... I remind you, civilians, they were a civilian unarmored target, a soft target, if you will, were just slaughtered, almost to a man. They had women and children, too, they mentioned. They're dead, too. They're all dead. Um, He is livid, and he wants revenge. He, He And it's worth noting, though, even though he wants revenge, his judgment remains sound. It's just that he is being presented as someone who also wants revenge. And that's actually kind of a key difference. It, it goes from being, ha, <laughs> ha, to we have been attacked by a hostile force, which has made an, what is very likely to be an invasion attempt on our territory. We need to respond to this as quickly and efficiently as we possibly can. Also, screw them. And that's a different mentality and attitude there, which is the one he is presenting. Also notice this is pretty much the same Kirk we see back in Conscience of the King, and we will see it again in the future as well. So then they go to, and I, I told you there's one more first, Warp 6. It's the first time we've gone to Warp 6. But then they go to Warp 7. Now this is interesting. Because this establishes a warp scale. Very loosely. But you'll notice that this is actually smart storytelling, really. Because by mere virtue of the fact that they have added numbers and how people react to that, we now know how fast what is. Like, we've gone up to, I believe, Warp 3 prior to this one. I, I haven't been keeping as much track as I'd like to, but that, that's roughly where we're at. So we know Warp 1 is standard. That's cruising speed. Warp 3 is obviously a bit faster. Warp 6 is sp- stated to be very fast. When he goes up to Warp 7, the whole bridge crew reacts to that, like, You want to go to Warp 7? That established... We don't, we don't need the techno babble. We don't need the actual warp scale. What we hear there is Warp 7 is very fast, and it's going to be dangerous to even accomplish. This then, of course, adds even more gravity to when he calls for Warp 8. And both Scotty and Spock point out this is actually, this might literally destroy us in the pursuit. This is a bad idea. Smart storytelling. So Spock then decides to argue morality. This is when Kirk brings up the thing I mentioned earlier. He's like, okay, listen, we're the only policemen out here. And he's right. This is the frontier. The Federation has no real presence here. No infrastructure is what I like to call that. You're probably thinking factories and stuff, and while factories are certainly part of it, infrastructure is a societal thing. You need to have personnel and ships and routes and defenses and scanners and and producers and... Um, I can't think of what it's called. There's the raw materials, and then there's the refineries, you know, when you turn raw materials into actual goods... You know, and then you've got the actual distribution, you've got the transportation hub. All this stuff, all of this web that makes up civilization, that's infrastructure. None of that's here. As Kirk points out earlier in the episode, there's only one major ship in this entire section. That's the Enterprise. One Constitution-class cruiser, that's all they got. So Kirk is correct in his action, and you'll notice once again that little headcanon idea I keep positing of the captain being an officiate of the state kind of comes in because he basically is making an action and a deliberation as if he is acting on behalf of the newly named Federation. Interesting to think about. At 20 minutes in, the Metrons get involved. Yay, godlike aliens. Didn't we just deal with this? It's okay. These ones are far more clearly photoshoppers. They are photoshopping reality rather than warping reality. Uh, so the photoshop re- uh, warpers, or the reality photoshoppers, there we go, that's, that's the phrase, sorry. The reality photoshoppers you know, stop both ships and say, like, okay, look. You can go fight it out on this planet, okay? Piss off. <laughs> and then they do so. This is uh, This is interesting because this is when the episode starts to get bad. Okay. I'm going to pause for a second. If I mentioned the episode TOS, season one episode, whatever we're up to, depends on how you, what nomenclature you use. What do you think of when you think of Arena? Real quick, just knee jerk. Now, I imagine most of you think the exact same thing I do. The Gorn. It's, it's pretty much the Gorn episode. You'll notice that we're 20 minutes into about a 50 minute episode and the Gorn have only shown up now. This is, Actually to the great strength of the episode. And the first twenty minutes are really good. There's a good threat, there's a good establishment, there's some stupidity with the space combat, but otherwise, good good characterization, good presentation, good firsts, good stuff with Kirk, good suspense. We've got this mysterious alien, and it's it's the it's and then we get the big reveal. Oh, it's the Gorn. Now this um this leads actually it's twenty three minutes in, excuse me, when the Gorns show up. I want to give special credit, by the way, to, uh, looks like Gary Combs is how that's pronounced. I'm not actually sure. He's the stuntman who played the Gorn. You're probably thinking, why is that relevant? Remember Joseph Pevney, I mentioned earlier? He actually said, guys, we need to get a stuntman in the suit. And everyone's like, why? And Pevney's like, because you're an idiot. Actually, that that's just me presuming. You should hear the man talk. There's a couple interviews about him. But no, um, <clears throat> no, the, what he actually said was, That's a big, thick, heavy rubber suit we're going to be filming out in the sun. You put an actor in that thing, he's going to fall apart. You need a stuntman who's got the strength and endurance to be able to sweat that one out. Oh yeah, good idea. He was right, of course. And funnily enough, this would establish a trend, at least on Star Trek, of using stunt actors who are more physically fit in some of the more physically demanding roles of aliens. So stuntmen would start becoming stunts and aliens pretty much throughout the rest of Trek history after this point, up until the new stuff, which obviously I don't know anything about. I keep saying that just in case someone pops in and isn't aware of the fact that as of now, I still haven't watched Discovery, Picard, or Lower Decks. (sighs) So, like I said, this is when the episode falls apart. There's a brawl to show... You know what, actually, let me just start for a second here. There we go. So, the Gorn looks stupid. I don't have anything else to add to that. Yeah, I, I know I, I shouldn't make fun for the time, and they did the best they could for the time. The Gorn look really stupid. <laughs> and it hurts. The, the the scenes, because even if I was willing to forgive that, the choreography on the fighting is terrible. Remember how I mentioned that it was actually in Shore Leave. It was nice to see an honest-to-goodness fight. This is not that. This is like the opposite of a fight. This is this is terrible. It's badly choreographed, badly acted, and it looks like two people who are throwing a fight at the same time. And, and they're just kind of awkward because both of them are trying to deliberately lose and not actually hurt each other. It looks awful. And it really hurts the episode and, frankly, really dates the series. Having said that, I do like the escalation of event. On paper, you could see the logic. So first, there's a brawl. That doesn't go Kirk's way. So then he throws a rock, okay. Then the Gorn throws a much bigger rock back. Okay, so we've established that in a melee, this is going the Gorn's way. Cool. Once again, good exposition. Then he starts talking to his thing, and we see the Gorn reacting to it. Also good exposition. Then we see resources all over, and he goes and he knocks a boulder over on the Gorn, which knocks out the Gorn, but doesn't kill him. Probably injures him. Then Kirk, running away, runs into the trap the Gorn had set, and nearly dies, except for the fact that this is kind of a kitsch episode. All of this kind of lines up and makes sense. This then leads to Spock uh, and McCoy requesting that they turn the streaming service back on. Okay, I'm barely kidding, but God's sakes, that is effectively what happens here. Spock is sitting there and he's he can't communicate with Kirk, of course, so he's not in chat saying, why aren't you using fire damage? But that is effectively what Spock's doing. He's backseat gaming of Kirk's conflict with the Gorn, and it's hysterical to watch. Maybe it's just because I am a streamer, so I'm amused by that, but damn. Here's the interesting part, though. That is also smart writing. Because I want you to picture for a moment, Kirk running around, eject the Spock and what he's saying. Because they're, they're watching, and Spock is kind of reciting what's happening as Kirk is doing it. But he's doing it in a very logical, no, no pun intended, a very in-character way. It's Spock being like, that's it, that's it, good, good. Instead of what would normally be done in fiction, which is something more like a dry narration. And then Kirk realized he could use the coal in order to produce this thing. Instead, Spock just says, with a small, satisfied smile, coal. And we get the exact same inference, with a good performance, and good writing. This is really well-scripted. It's strange how well-scripted this is. It's almost like it's not a first draft. So... Spock giving that, that that play-by-play helps the episode because otherwise we just have Kirk doing random things. And I gotta be real; I, I like to think that treating the audience as the, as if they are smart is the correct way to do things. But watching Kirk pour a bunch of random rocks and powders, which we have no idea what any of them are, into a cannon—excuse me, into a bamboo shoot—and then shooting the guy would only be obvious what's happening after the shot itself. The whole time would just be kind of, what's he doing? Now, that's still a valid way to approach it, but you can see why he wanted to have Spock explaining the play-by-play, and he did it in a smart way. Good episode, which leads me to uh, two last things. First of all, while he's doing that, another reason that the Spock play-by-play helps is because we have literally two solid minutes of... I'm too dry. I'm too dry to do it. Sorry, I've been talking too much. We'll figure. The hissing. The hissing of the Gorn. It's two solid minutes of, of basically all the audio is just... <laughs> and it's just... Okay, yeah, that gets a little old. we got to talk about the original ending. I know we're skipping over the climax because... Well, what can I say about it? Other than what I'll say last. But what I want to say about the original ending is the original ending was the Metrons were going to... Actually, destroy this is in the original script, by the way. We're going to destroy whoever won the conflict. Why? Because they're the greater threat. In short, they would go from being godlike aliens and reality photoshoppers to being another power on the playing field who want to try and ensure that anyone else who can threaten them can't. A uh, culling or reaping, if you prefer. Interesting idea. I kind of prefer the fact that they ejected it. In the interest of fairness, the Metrons never show up again. Unlike the Gorn, who at least get referenced a few times and show up in Enterprise, the Metrons will never be back. Get used to that, by the way. So, what is there to talk about? I have a question for you. Was the Gorn assault on Cestus Three justified? Please, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. One of the things that has been a recurrent trend in the comments section, has been doing these for the last nine years, or eight years, however long it's been at this point, I think it's eight at this point, uh, is that you guys have given me some absolutely fascinating things to chew on and to think about. I know I don't respond to most of my comments. I work... Ten hours a day, seven days a week. I don't know what you want from me. But I do read every single one of them. It's part of my morning ritual. I get up and I read the comments. And I have loved a lot of your guys' thoughts. And I think this is a big one. Is the Gorn attack on Cestus III justified? Not is it right or wrong, but is it a justified action of a nation on another nation? This is more of a political and war question than it is anything else. I'm not going to give my opinion on that one. I don't want to influence yours, and I want to hear yours. But I do want to mention one thing. The Federation is very colony-happy. This is true back in the day. This is true in the TNG era. This is true pretty much through hell. Even in Enterprise, they're colony-happy, for God's sakes. Um, But one of the points that was intended here, and this is hysterical to me with the advantage of hindsight, is that all of this build-up is that... This is not a threat of the weak. The Gorn are not monsters, you know, in in the in the terminology of being a a bad guy which is defeated or a you know a and then I'll eat your brains, you know, monsters in the traditional sci-fi sense. Instead, this is a state reacting to another state's actions. Just like Kirk was earlier. Kirk was remember the, the whole justification thing. Remember I hammered that point in. Kirk believed that he was responding to an aggressor nation, just like they did. Now, I'm not saying whether they were justified or not. What I am saying is that this reveal completely changes the perspective of what we're looking at. In fact, Spock actually says it flat out. I can't believe I've never caught this before. This is an issue best left for diplomats. He's right, because he recognizes, as the episode finally gets to the idea of, by the when the Gorn finally starts talking back, and we reveal the the reality of the situation, we realize that this is actually an international incident. Not necessarily a declaration of war. Not an invading species. This is not the Husnok showing up and destroying everything and being marauders. This is not um, the Tyranids coming by because they're hungry. This is an international incident, and it has to be treated as such. And I do very much like that reveal. It's probably one of the more subtle reveals of the entire show. I hope I've given you at least something to think about. And again, looking forward to those comments, guys. I'll see you next time.